we had both been through divorces. And after we had started dating and got furious, got engaged, and we're in the process of getting married, we're like, what we do in relationship science really has a lot to say about how people can experience divorce and can come out of it. Are you ready? Are you sitting down? Shine on Podcast 2022. I've said before and I'll say it again. Divorce affects so many people out there. The money, the property, the assets, so many high-profile divorces. The conflict, the allegations, huge legal fee and support awards, you name it. Divorce is a true team sport. Incredible insight. Not divorce stories. Shine on Podcast. Shine on Podcast. The Shine on Podcast 2022. It's episode 46 of the Shine on Podcast. I'm Evan Shine. Producer Dave, I can't believe this is the last episode of the summer. Wow. Where did su- where did summer go? It always goes by way too fast. And it was kind of the first, not really non-COVID, but somewhat non-pandemic summer. So it was fun, but I can't believe it's over. Bummer. Hey Dave, time flies when you're having fun. And that is exactly <laughs> what we're doing here on the Shine On Podcast. We're having a blast, and we end the summer here on the Shine On Podcast with an absolute bang. On today's episode, I'm joined by Erica Slaughter and Patrick Markey, co-authors of the book Fuck Divorce. Erica and Patrick are both professors at Villanova University. And oh, by the way, they're married to one another. And this is going to be an interview that you're not going to want to miss. I talk with Erica and Patrick how to put yourself back together after your life implodes And we have a lot of fun. We get an inside look into their marriage, how each of them bounce back and move forward following their first marriage and how they keep their spark alive. And Dave, the donkey is on deck. So as we always do in the Shine On podcast, let's fire it up. And now let's see what's on the docket. So for this edition of the docket, Three different opinions from three different opinion slash advice columnists. First one comes to us from Dear Carolyn from the Washington Post. Item one. Letter to Carolyn reads, Dear Carolyn, if I had to rate my marriage, I would give it a B. I don't want to have a B marriage, but I have toddler kids. The thought of putting them through a divorce is like a punch to the gut. And the reader continues to summarize by saying their marriage is a B. Should they stay in it for the kids? Your thoughts on this one? Dave, my first thought is, you know what I can get behind? A Dear Dave column. <laughs> I'm ready. I mean, I'm you're, ready. You're, giving me, you're giving me Dear Carolyn, and all I keep thinking about is I want to hear from Dear Dave. Dear Producer Dave. Yeah, I'm ready. That, that could be something we launch in season three. I'm excited. I think we should do it, absolutely. <laughs> okay. But look, the, the bottom line is, you know, it's a question I get asked. Do I stay in a marriage, you know, for my children? And here, look, the reader grades the marriage at a B. It's not the lowest grade you could, you could receive. I mean, if right. the marriage was an F, I would say get the hell out mm. of the marriage and relationship. But it's also not that A that you strive for as a spouse, as a parent, and people want more. And I get it. The B for this particular person is not good enough. And Carolyn gives great relationship advice, and she talks about marriage, counseling, and individual therapy. And she gives the advice about changing the perspective and framing the thought process about whether to stay or leave in a different way. And I think she does that because the B grade is not that bad. And this is a hard decision for people about what to do, especially when there's young children. And so much goes into this decision-making process 
But Dave, let me ask you, you know, what are your thoughts on this? You know, the reader grades her own marriage and relationship at a B. Again, it's not an F. It's not an A. But is there that A? Does it exist? Is it real when you have kids, don't have kids, whatever it may be? Or is the expectation that marriage and life, you know, that that it's something attainable and perfection, is that something that's within our within our reach? Well, Spoiler alert, the answer is there is no answer. The answer is I think everyone has to decide for themselves what their breaking point is. I mean, I would agree with you that you were suggesting there's no perfect marriage, and there isn't. There simply isn't. No one is is an absolute 100% perfect match for another. I think if you can hang on to certain things, like this person still makes me feel special, I can rely on this person, this is the person I can see myself sitting on the couch with when we're both 80 years old, then you've probably got an A- minus or close to it. The, I understand the, the writer's concern and dilemma because B might be the hardest one. If you're C or lower, then it's probably easier. If it's an F, like you said, it's a no-brainer. So, but the answer is don't go, I mean, don't go searching, and, and you can write into, uh, you know, ask producer Dave if you'd like to, and I'll give you an answer. But the answer is it's, it's for each person to decide the right answer is the one you pick, and then you go with it, and you do the best you can. And that's exactly why you need your own column. <laughs> Look for it. Coming up next year, we move on. Item two comes to us from Cleveland.com. Item two. Headline reads, Dear Annie, I'm worried our separation will lead to divorce. The writer writes, my husband and I were childhood sweethearts. We're currently separated, and I'm concerned this might lead to divorce. It's her second marriage. They have two children, etc. A lot of separations, I think, do lead to divorce, but your, your thoughts on this exchange? I mean, Dave, my thought is exactly that. It's almost yeah. like, what do you think was going to happen? I mean, if you separate, <laughs> there's really only one or two things. I mean, either you're going to get back together and resume living together, or you're going to go down the path of divorce. And look, the truth is, it really depends on what are the issues that caused you to separate. And, you know, it, it really is one of those things where people will come to me, sit across from me in my office and say, look, I think we need space. I think we each need to individually work on the marriage, work on the issues, work together with a marital therapist. But then the question is, are you seeing progress? Are you both doing what you need to do to have the relationship be in a better place? And if the answer is yes, great. You're going to likely get back together if that's what you want to do at that point in time. But if you're not putting in the effort and not putting in the work, then, yeah, you're likely to end up getting divorced. Third item comes to us from Slate.com. Item three. Headline reads, I blamed my daughter's ex-husband for their divorce. Now, this is a little bit of a tricky one. But the writer says, my daughter, Sue, in in, in uh, finger quotes, not, not her real name. Sue was married to Dan for six years before divorcing 1.5 years ago. Some might say one and a half. Uh, Sue had been complaining us, complaining to us about Dan increasingly in the months before the divorce. We believed her. She said Dan was lazy, inattentive, and spent most nights out drinking with friends. But we later find out that Dan's divorce was actually Sue, the daughter's, because of Sue's, the daughter's, years-long affair with another man, the very man she started dating four months after the divorce. We're shocked and disgusted by Sue's behavior when they go on to say we feel bad about the way we treated Dan. So what the writer says is, I want to apologize to him, perhaps by sending a letter. My husband thinks this won't accomplish anything other than reopening old wounds. 
tricky situation. So it's got th- this guy's former in-laws feel bad that they contributed to this divorce that perhaps he didn't deserve. Your thoughts? <laughs> Dave, I got to tell you, this has me laughing. I mean, at the end of the day, do you imagine yourself in this guy Dave's position, divorced, getting a letter of apology? Yeah. Or you check your email in the morning over a cup of coffee and an email pops up from your mother-in-law apologizing. I don't know. I get it. But at the same time, move on. Unless there's kids involved and there's a real reason to stay in touch. Or unless, you know, obviously the mom wants to do it so she can feel better about the way she treated, you know, her, her son-in-law. I would say from that perspective, if she wants to do it, do it. But, you know, th- this to me is really much to do about nothing. Move on. If you don't have kids, that relationship is, you know, likely not going to be one that you're going to maintain going forward. I don't know. Look, people rush to judgment all the time. But the other thing this brings up is it's usually not one person, right? There's usually, you know, one side of things, another side of things. But really the truth, it's somewhere in the middle. Mm. And I'm sure, and Dave, you can let us, you know, let, let everyone know your thoughts. But, you know, when you hear from people and friends that you know who have gotten divorced, your own divorce, you know, everyone has their own thought, their own story. You know, the spouse has a different story. But people look at things through their own lens, their own perspective. But, right, the truth is somewhere somewhere in the middle. For sure, yeah. And and that's why, you know, it, it's it's a tricky thing with divorce that a couple gets divorced and they sometimes they divide up friends and friends will take sides. And sometimes those split evenly. Sometimes it gets messy. But in this case, I think you're right. That's, that, that's, that's a keen observation because the, the writer here, the former mother-in-law, she talks about a lot of the, the, bad, the bad things that her daughter did. But how do we know that the things that the, this guy is alleged to have done isn't also true? They could both be true, you know, and maybe the marriage wasn't meant to be. So I would say may, maybe I would just add that if writing the letter is maybe genuinely out of a feeling that maybe this guy needs to hear that he wasn't totally in the wrong, that it wasn't his fault, that, you know, we – we get you now and you know, we're sorry, you know, maybe that is a letter the guy would appreciate getting, but otherwise you're right. Time to move on. All right. We're up to the portion of the podcast where Evan gives his thoughts on the issues of the day today. He will discuss returning to court after a pandemic. That's the topic of this week's shine on spotlight. The shine on spotlight. And this week, we shine a spotlight on the court system, and we are back. Let me say it again. We are absolutely back, not fully back, but enough back in the courtroom for me to be absolutely giddy about it, to talk about it on the Shine on Spotlight. That's right. I'm getting more and more in-person court appearances. Producer Dave, Christmas has come early for me because you know I love litigating in the courtroom. (laughs) You know I've talked about before with the great former New York County judge, matrimonial judge Matthew Cooper about the benefits of being in court, in person, settling cases. And let me say this, virtual appearances, they're here to stay in part, but being back in person, given the type of law that I practice, divorce law, family law, matrimonial law, dealing with people, being in a courtroom, helping settle cases in person with the judge, the judges, you know, court staff and and the court attorneys, it's going to help move things forward in a way that we really haven't been able to do as effectively as we really would have liked because cases have lingered. I mean, I've told the story before on a prior podcast. I had asked a judge who I appear in front of regularly for a trial date. He said, Mr. Shine, thanks for providing me with the comedy relief. I needed it today. He <laughs> said when the pandemic started, I had 175 cases. 
Now, at this point, two and a half years later, I have 350. I can give you your trial date in 2024. Mm. So my point is I'm glad to be back. I think it's good for everybody to be back in person, really start settling issues. And again, Christmas has come early in my world. I'm happy to be back in the courtroom. Our featured guest on this week's episode of the Shine On Podcast are Villanova professors Erica Slaughter and Patrick Markin. They're co-authors of the book, Fuck Divorce, A Science-Based Guide to Piecing Your Life Back Together After Your Life Implodes. That's right. We have the husband and wife duo behind the incredible new book with us on the podcast this week. Erica and Patrick, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you with us. Hi, thanks for having us. I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you. And it's an absolute treat to have both of you on the podcast this week. And there's a lot that we're going to get into. And to start, you both went through a divorce. You both found love again and are happily married to one another. And in 2021, you published a book that you co-authored together, a title that I absolutely love, Fuck Divorce. So let me start it by asking you, Erica, what was the experience like to write a book with your husband? <laughs> it was, we had a great time, actually. Um, it was a little bit of an unusual experience because we signed the contract on the book about two weeks after uh, we had our son. Oh, so wow. we, we were writing this book in that first year of his life. So it was mostly fueled by caffeine and wild amounts of sleep deprivation. Jokes are coming from that place. I was going to say, you didn't have anything else going on at that time? <laughs> no, no, but it was, it was a lot of fun. We really enjoyed sort of dividing and conquering and working through the edits and everything. We, you know, we didn't love each other less at the end. So we're going to call that a win. I was going to say, you're sitting next to each other on the podcast. So that's a good thing. And, and Patrick, let me ask you. What did you learn about Erica during the process and really the experience of writing the book that you may not have known or realized before? She loves run-on sentences. <laughs> and a semicolon. Yeah, she's great using a semicolon. I still don't grasp the semicolon completely, but she's really great at that. No, I mean, I, have, I, mean, I always knew. I mean, we worked together before we became a couple. I mean, as you said, we were, we were married to other people at one point in time even. And so I always knew she was a brilliant researcher, but I never really had worked with her before. And so it was really the first big project that we worked on together. And so it was neat to see kind of how her brain works and to, to steal her ideas and to kind of stand on her shoulders and all of that good stuff. Hey, Patrick, let me ask you about that. You mentioned, you know, it was great to see Erica's brain work. And, and both of you are professors. Both of you are researchers in, in, in the area of psychology. Erica, starting with you, what was it like, given your, your background, given your experience and career, to then put all that together with the book that you wrote with Patrick? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, it was, the whole process was was really an interesting one. You know, we we came up with the idea from the, for the book after we'd gotten together. We had both been through divorces. And after we had started dating and got furious, got engaged, and were in the process of getting married, we were like, you know, like, what we do in relationship science really has a lot to say about how people can experience divorce and can kind of come out of it at least in one piece, if not better, right? So kind of can survive and even thrive in this really terrible experience. And we're sitting there, we're like, aren't we cute about it, right? Like, <laughs> we're a couple, we research relationships, we need dogs that lovely. We're like, we can, we can spin that, right? So that was kind of the, the so what, what would it be like to say what we know from the research that we've been involved in for decades, right? About 
how to make a relationship work, right? How to piece yourself back together again after everything goes wrong, right? How to kind of rediscover your sense of identity. You know, my uh, focus in my research is actually how relationships impact how we see ourselves. And so that was really the area of the book that was my, my baby and my area of expertise. And Pat has done quite a bit more work on kind of initial attraction processes and dating and sex in early relationships and things like that. And so we were able to sort of cobble these things together to say like, hey, we've been there. We get that it's awful, but here's all of this data that people have been publishing in journals that the average person never sees, mostly because they're paywalled, but that's not But in journals that nobody ever sees, that really has stuff to say about like how you can make your life better after this awful thing has happened. So that's kind of where we were, where we were coming from with the book. And like I said, we, we figured that we were kind of a cute, you know, story about the, about the whole thing is kind of a, a framework to base it off. No, and the book was fantastic. And Erica, you mentioned, you know, Pat's, you know, area of focus and research. And, and so Patrick, take us into the moment for you when your divorce was finalized in terms of dating, in terms of sort of getting back out there. <laughs> Enough time for that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, so obviously everyone's, everyone is, is different. And my divorce was, was a surprise to me when it started. I, I did not see a divorce coming. I have, I, I had two children at the time. I mean, I still have two children. I have an extra one too. And so, and I was kind of settled into my lifestyle, of, you know, white, white shoes, dad jeans and all that kind of stuff. And suddenly we became divorced after I kind of got my feedback underneath me. There was a time, years where I kind of then started trying to date and so forth. And so it's, kind of relearning all those steps again of what you do when you kind of are trying to restart your life, essentially. Not, not even restart, that's not the right word. Trying, trying to add your life in a different direction than you were expecting it to go. And so I learned a lot about myself and so forth. And I think that's kind of what the book was really trying to focus on for me was kind of almost a self-help book for myself that I wish I had had at the time. What research can show us how to kind of get your life back together and kind of get back out there. So let me ask you about that research because you hear so much about after some of us through the divorce process, whether it's grief or transition or loneliness, is there a point in time where based on the research, you know, based on your own personal experiences, you know, with Eric and finding love again and having dated, is there a point in time where it all just clicks, where you transition from all those feelings I just mentioned and those emotions to really being able to move forward, see what's ahead and really begin the search for love, whatever that may look like. Yeah, I mean, yes and no. I mean, the divorce never goes away, right? So especially if you have children and so forth, right? It's kind of like a snail. There's always a trail behind me that <laughs> that's my, my previous relationship. It always follows me. And it's not a bad thing. It's just always there. But yeah, as far as getting your feet kind of back underneath you and, and kind of, oh, I'm going to go back out there. Sure, but it's not like there's a moment that it happens. It's a slow, gradual process. Most people think they're, they're ready when they're not. So a lot of times when people go out there, start dating, it's a disaster and that's fine. I mean, it's a disaster for lots of reasons. The disaster because you might not be psychologically ready. It's also a disaster because you're not good at it. You haven't dated in probably most marriages an average of about eight years before a divorce. So you haven't dated in almost a decade. So, you know, there's a lot of relearning and so forth. So there's no magic moment of like, you know, you suddenly have a bright light and you're like, I'm ready to go out there. We're all, you're going to go out there. You're going to stumble and so forth. And then eventually you'll kind of limp along and get along quite well. It, you know, you'll find different people. And, and, you know, for me, 
the dating world ended up being informative of who I am. It let me kind of rediscover myself and so forth. Not that I had totally lost myself, but it kind of helped me rediscover myself and put my life on a slightly different path and so forth than I might have been on before. Yeah, if I, if I could add to yeah, that please. a little bit. You know, I think that that one of the things that I've found to be true in the in the divorce process is that, like Pat said, there's not ever going to be a magic moment, right? I think when someone is ready to sort of start putting the pieces back together, it's going to vary a lot from person to person based on what their experiences are, their personality, right? What their, how their previous relationship ended, whether or not their children picture, all of these different things are going to matter. But beyond that, it's even for myself and my ex and I did not have children. And now we've been divorced almost as long as we were married. And I have very little contact with him, right? I wish him well. That's great. But I just don't hear from him very often. But that doesn't mean that there aren't still moments of grief, right? Even after you've moved on in your life and you are deliriously happy with somebody new, right? Which, you know, I, I generally am. There are still moments where you're like, dang, like that, what's up? Did that change my life and the trajectory of my life in important ways? And so I think there's never going to be that magic moment when it's just all over. But that doesn't mean that it's necessarily has to shape your day-to-day life forever or that it has to have a significant impact on your mental health forever, right? This is something that happens in your life just like anything else happens in your life. And yeah, it's a practical thing, but we can all move on from it and be happy, healthy, and thriving human beings. And just what that looks like, it's going to vary a lot from one person to the next. Was it easier for both of you to connect with one another because you shared a similar experience in terms of your divorce. And to that point, do you suggest people who have gone through that experience seek out other people who have been divorced? That's a great, that's a great question. So that's actually how we got to know each other is more than just colleagues. Patrick had been divorced about a year before my marriage ended. And when he found out I was going to be divorced, he came to my office one day. He's like, hey, like, if you need a divorce buddy, like someone to complain to, like, let's go get lunch. So we did. And it became like a monthly thing where we'd go out, we'd get dinner and drinks, and we'd complain about our dating lives or something or anything done that was ridiculous. And that's how our relationship sort of sort of blossomed. So yes, I think that was a major, that was a major attractant for us. But beyond that, you know, there's plenty of literature out there in in, you know, psychology showing that similarity is a good thing, right? That generally speaking, we are more attracted to and we tend to have more successful relationships with people who are like us, right? So that encompasses demographic factors, personality factors, preferences, goals, beliefs, and you name it, right? And it, it's, you know, you want similarity there. So to the extent that someone's had similar experiences as you, yes, being with somebody who's divorced as well could be a great thing. I think the caveat to that is that we know that second and third marriage is, and no one studied beyond that, right? have a much higher divorce rate than first marriages, all right? So for first marriages hovers in the mid 40% of, of all first marriages and ending divorce. For second marriages, it's something like 67%. For third marriages, it's like 75%. It's not pretty. And so we know that divorce seems to increase the likelihood that you won't get divorced again for reasons that we're not quite sure of. And so it can, you know, it can be a mixed bag, right? The idea that you know, if you're both divorced, you're probably coming to the table with more baggage 
right? Either emotional or practical in terms of blending families with children and ex-spouses who are going to be in the picture until those children are 18 or older, et cetera, and so forth. That puts more of an external stressor on the relationship. And that can, can be really hard to navigate. So from a similarity perspective, yes, find other divorcees. That's a great thing. But keep in mind that that also comes with some disadvantages that might go along with it. Eric, your book offers tough love mm. for people. Mm-hmm. Can you give us an example of that? Yeah. So, you know, our book, our book was really the, the book that we wished that we could find when we were getting a divorce. We're both fairly irreverent people. And so finding something that was very like, pat on the back, hold your hand while you're sad. Like that wasn't, that wasn't what we were girls before. And the other thing was that we found that there weren't a lot of books out there on divorce of the thousands and thousands that exist that made use of the social, psychological, personality, psychological data that are, that exists and having this for decades to kind of inform the advice that they were giving people. And so we wanted to lean into that. And sometimes that means tough love because sometimes the data says things you don't want to hear, right? But one of the examples from the book actually comes from our chapter on how to, uh, to navigate things with your children. And, you know, the bottom line is when people get divorced, they're often very worried about how their children might be impacted, right? And often receive the advice of, oh, kids are resilient. They'll be fine. Don't worry about it. It's going to be great, right? Your kids are bombed. You got divorced, right? They are upset. They are devastated. The data supports that right around when a divorce is happening in a, in a family that the children in the family are really emotionally negatively impacted by that. Nobody wants to hear that, right? Like that's, that's like as a, as a parent for Pat, I'm sure I couldn't speak to this as I was not a parent at the time, but I know how I feel now. Like, like that, that feels terrifying. Now, the good news is that long term, it seems like kids are mostly fine, right? In terms of thinking about measures of psychological well-being, measures of academic performance, like with the criminal record, like all of those things that, that, we, that we measure as psychologists, that having come from a divorced home, having divorced parents, doesn't significantly change your, your risks or reduce your outcomes for good things kind of throughout your life and as you move into adulthood. So yes, kids are resilient. And the take-home point is they end up being fine most of the time. But they're still really, really upset by the divorce usually. And people, that's not information people want to hear. Yeah. And, and it's important for that. Obviously not. There are some kids that are actually happier after the parents got divorced. That it's a smaller number. But sometimes if parents were particularly vocal or abusive beforehand, a divorce actually in- increases the kids' well-being. But kind of even the kids, as Erica said, when we find the decline in their satisfaction or other outcomes like grades and so forth. We could almost explain that completely by changes in income, not by changes in the family structure. And simply because suddenly we have two households with the same income, obviously there's more, each child has less money essentially. And so we see that income strongly related to all these other outcomes and so forth. And that might be one of the main explanations for, even when we see some of these smaller long-term outcomes, it's probably due to a lowering of socioeconomic status as a result of the divorce. Fascinating. And Patrick, let me ask you, because Erica touched on her relationship with, with her ex. She didn't have kids with her ex. You did, I think you mentioned too. What kind of relationship do you have with your ex? And what was it like to blend the families together? Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, it's obviously, it's from my own standpoint. So everyone's story is different. 
But we do see similar patterns. And my, my story kind of fits some of those similar patterns in that very often when people get separated, there's two things that happen. Either they boom, like it's explosive or it's not as explosive. And our separation was definitely not an explosive separation. I mean, obviously it was emotional and so forth, but we both tried to do our best for the children to not, you know, be overtly aggressive or anything towards each other. And as after we separated, we became friends isn't the right word, but we tried to have like a friendship relationship with the children as well. Kind of in the idea that this is probably best for the children. And one thing that research finds is that, well, that seems great to have this, what's called a perfect power relationship with your ex. It actually does not really work that well in the long run, that it's hard to maintain a friendship with an ex. Now you can do it great. There's nothing inherently wrong about it. But usually what happens is it becomes more difficult for people to move on to other relationships. They maintain that perfect friendship. You can kind of imagine a new partner coming in and realizing your best friends with your ex isn't always going to fly. Not idea. <laughs> difficult to have it and separation. And in fact, in one of the large studies that examined this, they found that those couples that had stayed perfect friends kind of through the divorce, that none of them went on to get remarried in, during the time, which was a few years, or, or had even relented a serious relationship, I should say. And so what a lot of couples did when me and my ex is we transferred into what's kind of like more like co-workers, like where these colleagues essentially, and our job is to raise our children. So, you know, we don't talk too much about personal things, about each other's personal lives. Like we'll say happy birthday and stuff like that. But there's not a lot of discussion in terms of our personal lives any more than you might talk to a coworker who's not, not a friend about your personal life. And so instead we communicate, but our communications are about the children. Like, you know, how much should we put away for college? How much are you putting away for college? Oh, how about your grades? What should we do about this? And so it's a, we try to keep it not personal, but again, not impersonal. We just try to be colleagues in raising our children. So I, I, I love that approach. And did that happen by trial and error? Because I think to your point, you know, I see so many of my clients, you know, they try to maintain a certain type of relationship, one that might resemble how people operated during their marriage. And far too often, I see people post-divorce where it essentially implodes. Yeah, no, it, it did. It happened slowly. It, it's not an easy thing. It, it became a conscious decision as time went on in my, in my, in my relationship with my ex is that we kind of realized that we weren't going to be able to maintain this type of relationship if we both want our own lives, essentially. And so, I mean, it's not an issue again. It's not an issue of disliking an individual or not or fighting with the individual, although we argue just like you might argue with colleagues at work. But it's, again, it's trying to keep it kind of more in the business sense of raising children. But it's hard and it's not an easy thing to do because you do slip into those old moments of, because you were so close for so long, it's hard sometimes to not get emotional about certain issues. So it is a battle for both people to try to do that. And one of the things that's really tough about it is really both people have to kind of agree to that rule, right? So if I said, I want to be this, this collaborative person, but my ex was like, I want to be your friend or I hate you so much, it's not going to work, right? So we both, both people have to agree to this kind of thing, which it ends up, in research shows that those couples who have that kind of relationship, if they both do it, they both benefit from it. So this isn't an issue where like you're giving in or anything like that, that if both people agree to do this and can do this, they're going to be way happier than if they stay these close, close friends 
or obviously become these kind of fiery foes that, that dislike each other. That that tends to be the most psychologically healthy one for members. And Eric, let me ask you from your perspective is the new wife and, and, and sort of what did you perceive, you know, from your, your side of it, Patrick, married before, two kids. What were the challenges that you went through from, from that side of it? Went through and going through. So uh, it's interesting that you mentioned blending our families because I actually, some of my newer research in the past couple of years, obviously we don't have a book on this or anything yet, but I'm starting to put together some publication efforts on it. It's focusing actually on step families and step parenting because it is something that has been such an interesting experience, you know, for me. You know, I think the things that have kind of made us successful, at least thus far, right? Just setting firm boundaries and compromise, 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 right? Um, you know, me kind of coming in and realizing that as much as I might come to love and care for my stepchildren at this point, you know, we've been together a number of years. I, I genuinely say that I love my stepchildren, but it's a growing process, right? So you fall in love with your stepchildren, just kind of the same way you fall in love with their parents. You know, you don't love them the minute that you meet them and they certainly don't love you. And so it takes time to sort of build that relationship. And so I think one of the things that was very important to us early on was that we went very slowly, right? And kind of spent limited amounts of time together and took time to warm up with the kids. And we're very certain that we were something serious before even kind of involving me in the kids' lives at all. And from there, it's just been, it's just been baby steps. And sometimes it's one step forward and two steps back, right? You know, I, you know, not having children of my own coming into the relationship, I have a certain way that I liked my home and liked to brought my life. <laughs> things like that. And obviously I had to, to compromise on those things because at the time there was an eight to 10 year old running around. And yeah. And so it's, it's, about kind of knowing what's going to work for you and for your family and kind of figuring out what those roles are going to look like and what's unfortunate. And something that, that I'm finding in, in my part research is that there's not a really good prototype. There's not a, there's no blueprint for step families, right? They come in so many different shapes and sizes and, and flavors that we as, you know, American society, at least, don't really know what to do with step families. Right. I'd still, if I were to walk into my, my stepkids school to pick them up or drop a form, I have no idea how that would be received. And, and so we as a society, we don't really know how to handle these things. And so defining your role as a step parent and defining your role, I imagine, as a step child, like these are things that we don't, we've got the Disney evil stepmother archetype. And we've got sort of this new idea of like, we all wear matching jerseys at the soccer game. <laughs> but if you don't fit into one of those little pigeonhole categories, you really kind of have to hack it out for yourself. And I think that's one of the beautiful things about it. You know, I always tell my stepkids, like, I'm not your mom, but I love you. And I think the great thing about our relationship is that we can have it be whatever we want it to be. Right now, keeping in mind that I'm still an adult and there are certain things that I don't think it's going to be appropriate for you to be doing at 15 and, you know what I mean? But, but like we can kind of make this our own thing. And I think that for us and sort of merging our families and coming together as a, as a broader unit, that was really kind of one of the biggest things is realizing that we could make this look however worked for us. And that was okay. I think I'm hearing the makings of a second book. I think following the podcast, you'd open up a <laughs> bottle of wine and get to work. <laughs> I know. We, we, we've talked about it, but we're at kind of at the stage where I feel like I need to have some 
some some more empirical grounding in that area before we start on a, on a, a book for the for the popular presses. Let me turn to one of the chapters and topics in the book, which I loved: navigating your newfound sexy time. Tell us what this is all about. Well, the, I mean, the idea is that you know, as Pad mentioned, the average man, first American marriage lasts about eight years. And again, that's just off average, which means that you theoretically, unless you have an open marriage, have been having sex with one person for a decade. Come on, the sparkle has to have gone at some point, right? I think that's true for most <laughs> couples. And and so the idea with this chapter is okay, you're older now. You're probably squidgier in places you didn't you weren't squidgy in before. And you haven't had to be naked in front of a new person in eight to ten years. So how are you going to have the confidence to do that again? And how can you, you know, kind of approach it as, as a way of thinking about, well, what do I really want out of a sexual relationship, right? Was my previous sexual relationship with my spouse fulfilling? And if it was, that's great. Look for that again. But if it wasn't, what, what am I into? Because we are firmly of the belief that if it's between consenting adults, fine, right? Whatever it is, right? But we wanted to talk about issues like, feeling comfortable with yourself in a new sexual relationship about some of the new, new, but norms around sex that maybe weren't prevalently talked about a decade ago, like consent, right? As well as, like I mentioned, kind of being, being true to yourself. And so for being able to find somebody at that is kind of fulfilling and satisfying in, in your life in this way that maybe you had it with your ex-spouse and it dwindled. Maybe you never had it with your ex-spouse. Maybe you're looking for the same thing again, but you're able to have that as a fulfilling part of your existence. And I'm doing the math there that we've been together about six years. <laughs> year. to, to Erica's point is that also in that chapter, I think one of the important things that, that we try to get across is not only discovering, potentially rediscovering who, what you're into, how you define yourself sexually and so forth, but trying to also realize that that is usually an important part of most relationships. And so trying to find a partner who is similar in that way. And most likely if you were married when you're in your twenties or so forth, that might not have been a giant thing that you looked for. But now with online dating and so forth, it's much easier to look for people with similar sexual interests as you have. And again, we're not saying what what we find is the most satisfying relationships in terms of sexual behaviors are people who have similar sexual interests. So it's not like being way out there and crazy, it's all necessarily great for a relationship. It's great for a relationship if your partner's also all out there and sexual. Whereas same thing, if you're really vanilla, that's totally fine as long as your partner's really vanilla. That we find that the problems happen when there's mismatches, when one partner wants to be more sexually adventurous, but the other one doesn't. And so one of the important things to consider when you're looking for your next partner and so forth is to find somebody that probably matches in terms of sexual interests at the start, because that would be most likely to prolong that passion in your relationship. You guys share the same sexual interests. Whereas if you're mismatched, either you're going to be an adventurous person, you're going to think your partner's accrued, or you're going to be not adventurous and you're, think, you're going to think your partner's sexually crazy. You don't want to do it him or her. So you want to find that match kind of early on. Let me ask you to go back in time. And I know mentioned, I know you mentioned that you wrote this book in part. This was the book that you wish you had when you were going through your divorce and getting out of it that didn't exist. When you think back to your own divorce, what's the one piece of advice you wish someone told you? It, that it was going to be okay, right? I mean, I, 
unlike Pat, my marriage had been actively failing for a couple of years, right? But that said, I was still surprised when my then husband came home and one day it was like, I'm out, like I'm done. And I, I went to bed sobbing for months, right? It felt like the world had ended. But how was I ever going to, to move on for this? And, I, and on top of that, I was in my early 30s at the time and wanted to have children. And how was I going to navigate that? I hadn't handled my finances ever, right? I went from being, you know, someone in her, her late, late teens, early 20s, whose daddy still filed for taxes to being married and her husband filed for taxes, right? I had never filed my own taxes. <laughs> and so I really felt like the, the world ended. And imagine my surprise when it didn't, like the sun kept coming up every morning. And so I had to find a way to file my taxes. Like I, I had to find a way to, to do all of these things and kind of keep putting one foot in front of the other. I still had a job to go to. If I wanted to have children, I was aware that the clock was kind of ticking. And so I needed to think about ways that I might want to achieve that with or without a partner. And so I think that the thing that I learned from it and the advice that I would have given myself at the time is just, just keep putting one foot in front of the other. Don't get stuck in it. And you will learn new things and end up better in a weird way for having gone through this, right? It still was an unpleasant experience. And in some ways, as much as I am, I love you, but there's still some ways in which I wish it hadn't happened. But I'm a better person and I'm a much more capable person, right? For having gone, having gone through it. Now I can't believe all of our time. And so that, that idea that like, it feels terrible, it feels terrible, but you will get through it if you just keep like, keep on keeping on kind of kind of stuff like that's what I would have told myself and Patrick let me ask you the same question but from a different point in time from the point when your divorce was finalized how can people learn from prior relationship mistakes based on your own experience based on your research to find themselves not going through that type of breakup experience again I mean, you're not, there's no, there's no easy way to, 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 to do that. And I mean, if, if that was in our book, we would, we would, yeah, that would be done. There's no, there's no, I would love to say you just do this and that. I mean, there's different techniques we discuss in the book, like ways to argue and stuff like that, that, that are, that are more productive and so forth, but there's never going to be a silver bullet that's going to protect everyone. So, I mean, basically what you have is your, your bet probability of more in the chances is, is one picking a partner initially that you think you can kind of finish out the rest of your life with and be happy with and so forth that can kind of have your back. And the other one is kind of learning how to be with that person. And so there's not necessarily a universal way of doing things. I mean, there are, again, there are techniques you can do that lower the probability arguments become bigger and so forth, but there's no, there's no silver lining or silver bullet that can prevent it. One thing that I, I kind of took from my divorce, I think helped me and it continues to help me is kind of accepting that the life I kind of thought I was going to have when I was married, like kind of, you know, when I was married and had two kids, I kind of looked forward to my future and I saw this life of growing old and having these kids and so forth. And the life I have now doesn't look like that. It, it wasn't my plan of this life, but that's okay. And it's that acceptance of, you know what, the life I have right now isn't necessarily the life I was planning to have but that's okay. And in many ways, the life I have right now is way better than the life I ever had back then. 
And so I think it's that acceptance of divorce and kind of the acceptance of what it could lead to that kind of helped me out the most. Let me ask you about that acceptance. Was that something that took work, took time? I mean, you talk about being married once before and, and sort of what, what the plan was, or at, at least in, you know, in terms of your thoughts and in your mind, was that hard to sort of get your hands around that, you know what, life was going to take you in a pretty different direction? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I wish I was all that in Zen and like, oh, it's okay. Like, I'll be <laughs> fine. No, and I, you still struggle with, like I said, there's still that snail tail that's kind of snail trail that's kind of following me all the time. And so there are always moments that's like, oh, it'd be so much easier if I was married right now. And I only had to deal with one other grown up instead of two grown ups. So, yeah, I don't know if you totally like ever get over it. It's the it's the general acceptance of like, OK, this is what it is. And it's not necessarily a bad thing. And when I was married, obviously, it's not like everything was wonderful. You know, there wasn't that snail tail I keep talking about, but there was there was a snail. So, but, but you know, there, I, every relationship has problems. And so, so getting divorced, you're still going to have problems in your new relationship. Even if you read our book, you know, you'll have less problems. Your life will be more wonderful, but, but it's not going to be perfect. Yeah. And I think with the book, we, we really hope that we can give people some tools that they can use to help navigate conflicts maybe more successfully than they than they have in the past, as well as to to focus on promoting the positive things in their relationships. There are there are things we can do like sort of looking for the best in our partner. It's called idealizing the partner. But it turns out it's a really good thing for feeling satisfied in your relationship. And things we can do to keep the spark alive, right? There's this whole body of literature on kind of doing new and exciting things with your partner. And the idea that this really bolsters not just relationship satisfaction. But passion over time, even in couples that have been together 20 years in some of the data sets. So this idea of not only can we give you maybe some tools that we've known about in the psychological literature for decades, right, about how to weather the storms, but also give you some tools that from that same literature that can help you sort of grow the good things in your relationship to give you the best possible shot. Although, like Pat said, there's no... There's no magic, magic potion that's going to make your, your relationship divorce proof at any point. Erica, what's your favorite way to blow up steam right now during the marriage? If you want Patrick to cover his ears. <laughs> well, right now, during our marriage, we have a three and a half year old and two teenagers. And so how I tend to blow up steam these days is I we have a home gym in our basement. And I hide out down there and lift the heaviest weights I could possibly. <laughs> and Pat, let me let me ask you same question, but to go to Erica's point before, the way that you try to keep the spark alive and to sort of carve out time for the two of you with everything the two of you have going on, careers, work, having children. What's the way that you try in the relationship and the marriage to, to keep that spark alive? Well, COVID threw a wrench in all of that for a lot of people, right? Though so it's been hard to, to get out of the house. I mean, you know, recently we were a little bit better, but like it was hard, especially during the young, the other times. And so we came up with all types of things where, you know, this is, this is one advantage of divorce. So our older kids, they're 50-50 with me and my neck. So they're half with us and half with them. And while they're not here, I, I hate it. Like I love it when they're around, but also when they're not here, it's kind of like I got a, a babysitter and that's really cheap. And so when they're not here and the little guy goes to bed at seven o'clock, it's me and Erica time. And so we do things like we'll set up 
laid on a movie screen on our lawn. That's land. Awesome. Or, or, or just try to try to do those kinds of things that, and it's, it, I don't want to, right, but it's work. But, you know, I get as much out of it too. Like, and it's fun. Like, I really enjoy it. Like, I probably don't do it enough, but it, it is kind of trying to remember those things. I guess maybe that's something I took from my last uh, marriages. I might have gotten, I mean, you should feel content in your relationship. I feel content, but like, maybe I was a little too content in terms of not doing the extra special things and so forth. And I try not to do that anymore. I try my best to like do special things sometimes. And so I, I hopefully that kind of helps out a little bit with keeping the passion alive. But yeah. And we also like, we just really like, like the, we are very similar. And, you know, in that going back to that selecting somebody who you can live with, like we just really like each other. Like, That's a good thing. Nerd out with like, <laughs> obscure board games and watch you know have a star wars movie mirrored out like like these are things we enjoy and we enjoy them together so even being even when we can't get out like covid aside if we just can't get a babysitter or don't want to get a babysitter he plans great date nights but beyond that we just enjoy spending time together so no that's that's, that's, that's an absolute key and i have to tell you this was a blast this was a lot of fun it, what an incredible spot with villain over professors Erica Slaughter and Patrick Markey, co-authors of the absolutely fantastic new book, which is a must-read, Fuck Divorce. I want to thank you both for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for having us. It's been a blast. Episode 46 of the Shine On Podcast. What an episode. What an interview. Summer may be over, but we are just heating up on the Shine On Podcast. We have an absolutely incredible lineup of featured Shine On Podcast guests. Docket segments by producer Dave, the legend. Coming up throughout the rest of 2022, Erica Slaughter, Patrick Markey, such a great spot in conversation with them. Their book, Fuck Divorce, this is the book that you need to pick up. An absolute must read. You can listen to the podcast on all major podcast platforms, Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, YouTube, and the number one podcast site, Pod617. Follow the podcast and subscribe. Producer Dave, what a show. What a show, what a summer, but as you said, I can't wait for the fall football season and more importantly, regular episodes of Shine On. That's exactly right. I'm Evan Shine, and I'll talk to you again real soon.